buddy. All right, well, it is a, a great privilege to be here with you guys, and um, we did have a great time yesterday. Sorry, Rich, that people rejected you so much. You, maybe I could have gone out with you and shown you. I don't know if you're unfriendly or scary or what. But um, I do want to say something. Um, I'm so thankful for our partnership uh, in the gospel, and I'm so thankful for my friendship with Rich. I've known Rich for many years, and I just want to commend him to you. Uh, this man is a hero to me. He is a courageous man. Uh, he has done what is best for the church, and he's a man of conviction, uh, and he has the scars to prove it. And I'm so thankful for his courage, his love for you, his love for the church, his love for the gospel. And I'm grateful to be his friend. So Rich, thank you for everything that you're doing. If you want to open up to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, if you're taking notes, the title of the message is called Pray and Go. But let me start with this story. In the winter of 1925, a small Alaskan town called Nome, situated on the edge of the Arctic Circle, found itself on the brink of an unimaginable crisis. An outbreak of diphtheria threatened to wipe out the entire community of 1,400 people. Nome's lone physician, Curtis Welch, feared that if the infection spread, it could destroy the surrounding communities of more than 10,000 people. The outbreak began in December 1924 when Welch saw what he thought were cases of tonsillitis. But when the number of cases grew and children began to drop dead, he feared the worst. Diphtheria is a highly contagious bacterial disease that attacks the respiratory system. Fortunately, a cure was available, an antitoxin. The problem was that the antitoxin was almost 700 miles away. And there was, a no, there was no way for a boat to get there because the harbors were frozen in. And there was no way for a plane to get there because there were only open cockpit planes. The only way to get it there was by dog sled. The U.S. Post Office recruited the best dog sled teams, a total of 20, and positioned them along the route. The entire route ordinarily took the post office 25 days to cover, but Dr. Welch couldn't wait that long because the serum lasted only six days and people were dying. The dogs would have to complete the journey in less than a quarter of the normal time. The journey began on the night of January the 27th. The first musher left with his team of 11 dogs, and the temperature dropped to negative 58. He developed hypothermia, and by the time he'd completed his 52-mile leg, three of his dogs were dead. The serum then made its way from musher to musher. Some dogs collapsed from frostbite, and one musher had to hook up to the harness and help pull his own sled. One musher got hit with an 80-mile-an-hour gust of wind as a storm came in, and it flipped his sled. He had to take off his gloves and dig the serum out of the snow, and he got frostbite on his hands. A powerful storm ripped over Alaska with the wind chills reaching negative 85 degrees. And then one of the mushers made a dangerous drive across the Norton Sound with his lead dog Togo navigating in the blinding storm. 
the musher could see nothing. It was 100% up to the dog to make his way across that sound. And then Balto led the last dog sled team into Nome with the precious serum. Altogether, it took them only five and a half days. And the entire town was saved. Jesus is also on a rescue mission. Just like those men in Nome, Alaska, they led those dog sled teams because they saw the desperate need. They saw the helplessness of the people who were dying in Nome. They had compassion. And that compassion moved them. And they saved that town. And what a joy it must have been to be a part of that rescue mission. Well, Jesus is also on a rescue mission in Matthew chapter 9. If you look at verse 35, it says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So Jesus is on a rescue mission. And he's going from town to town throughout, it says, all the cities and villages. And he's doing two things. He's proclaiming the gospel and healing the sick. Imagine this, every single town he comes into, everyone is getting healed. And everyone is hearing the good news of the gospel. I, I just love this picture of Jesus. He is bringing blessings and joy and wholeness everywhere he goes. This is what he does. It's also what the early church does in Acts. They are doing the same thing. They're preaching the gospel and healing the sick. Jesus is on a mission. Why? Well, because people are harassed and helpless. It's verse 36. Like sheep without a shepherd. Now, sheep are extremely temperamental and vulnerable creatures. They're constantly being harassed and picked off by predators with almost no way to defend themselves. And they even harass one another. Without a shepherd, they create a, a pecking order. They'll push each other off a nice tuft of grass and sometimes not let other sheep drink or even rest. The sheep become anxious and unable to function. And without a shepherd, they blindly follow one another into bad decisions. They, they can't find water or food on their own, and it's not uncommon for them to starve or dehydrate. They are probably the clearest example of helpless creatures. Now, human babies are the most helpless creatures at birth, but eventually they're able to take care of themselves, at least in theory. But sheep remain helpless for the duration of their lives. When Jesus sees these sheep, 
when he sees all these crowds and all these cities, his response is compassion. Now, the Greek word used here, which I can't pronounce, is much stronger than compassion. It means that when he saw the crowds, it was gut-wrenching. His heart went out to them. It broke his heart. And I just love this about Jesus. He has great compassion on them. They have no shepherd. They're getting harassed and beat up. They're leading each other astray. They're being led to the slaughter. And Jesus is moved by this. It brings out great compassion in him. Oskar Schindler was a member of the Nazi party. He ran a factory in Poland during World War II, and he employed many Jews. As the war progressed, Schindler began to notice how the Jews were being treated. He began to see how they were being harassed and how it was getting worse and worse. There's one scene in the movie Schindler's List where they are, in their terminology, liquidating the Krakow ghetto. It means they're They're taking the Jews out and killing them and sending them to the concentration camps. And there's this powerful scene in the movie where this little girl comes out and she's in a red coat. It's the only color in the entire movie. Everything else is black and white. And Schindler is up on a hill and he sees this girl. And she's just walking. She's stepping over dead bodies and and slowly walking, and Schindler sees her. And in a later scene, he sees that little red coat and her dead body on top of a cart. In that moment in the movie, Schindler saw the Jews. He saw they were harassed and helpless, and he had compassion. And that compassion moved him to do everything in His power to save them. Jesus had compassion when He saw the lost sheep in all the towns of Israel. He saw them and it moved Him. Jesus had eyes to see people that were being harassed. Do we? I often don't. I often don't see that people are being harassed. I'm too busy thinking of myself. Commentator Charles Price said, compassion comes from seeing people in their true state. Praying for compassion is not likely to be very effective. Opening our eyes to see people as they really are is the true source of compassion. Brothers and sisters, non-Christians are lost. They are helpless. And Jesus saw them in their true state that they are separated from God and storing up wrath for the day of judgment. Do we see them in their true state? There are people all around us that don't know Jesus, and the enemy is harassing them day and night. Our neighbors, our co-workers, our family members are being deceived. 
people around us are hurting. They're anxious and depressed and dejected and lonely and suicidal. They're being funneled down a path of destruction, deceived into thinking that the things of this world will bring them joy. But instead, they live in pain and sorrow and hopelessness, and they're helpless, they're trapped, they can't get out, they can't break their chains, they can't save themselves. And when Jesus saw this, His compassion welled up inside of Him. Do we have compassion when we see the lost? Does it break your heart? Is it gut-wrenching? Well, it's often not for me. I often don't see the lost. Or I can see them as a problem. I can look down on people who are messed up. I can view them as not worth the effort. I can even see them at times as the enemy. Jesus doesn't see them that way. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't see you that way? He sees them as lost sheep. And He sees them with compassion. But there's another problem besides the fact that people are harassed and helpless. There is a major problem here. We don't have enough people to help them. The other problem is that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. That's verse 37. The problem isn't that the harvest is plentiful. We usually want a plentiful harvest. And if there isn't anything to harvest, that's an even bigger problem. But this harvest is the lost sheep that need to be rescued. It's the lost men and women who need to hear the gospel. The problem that Jesus highlights is not the harvest. There's plenty to harvest. It's that we don't have enough people to do the work. We don't have the workers. There aren't enough people in the fields. The crop's going to die. People are going to die. And Jesus wants to help them. Jesus switches analogies here. He could have stuck with the sheep and the need to rescue them, but He switches to this huge field that can't be harvested. Now this is a major tragedy. Bringing in a great harvest is supposed to be a time of celebration, of of joy and blessing, but a harvest that's wasted and dies is cause for great sorrow and, and mourning. I read recently of one farmer in California who had to let millions of strawberries rot because he couldn't find anyone to pick them. And I read about another farmer who had to plow 300,000 heads of fresh lettuce into the ground because there were no workers to harvest them. Do you see the massive harvest all around you. Your neighbors, your co-workers, family members, classmates, waitresses, people at the gym, at the grocery store, at the bank, at Starbucks, your mechanic, your hairdresser, your mailman. There are plenty of lost people. We have not run out of them. There are non-Christians all around us. It's a huge harvest field. And the heart of Christ is to help them. And He wants you to help Him with the harvest. We can make a difference in this. I mean, you can almost hear Jesus encouraging us, you can do this. 
Come join me in the harvest. There's a man who came to our church recently. His name is Romeo. He came to our bridge class, our bridge course, and he was a very aggressive atheist. In fact, he would try to sow seeds of doubt whenever somebody talked about faith. He, he watched all the YouTube videos and he would just try to derail people from their faith. Well, his son, who was a new Christian, was, uh, his dad was trying to derail him, but his son started coming to church and his son invited Romeo to come to the bridge course. So Romeo thought this would be a great place for him to sow seeds of doubt in people. And God had a different idea. So he came to Bridge, and as he heard the gospel, week after week, the Lord regenerated his heart. And one of the things that Romeo said when he gave his testimony, he said, I can't stop thinking about the word grace. He said, all I do at work, I'm so distracted, I just write the word grace, and I kind of doodle it, and I write little acronyms for the word grace, and I just kind of can't stop thinking about this idea of grace. We can tell people about this grace. We can show them the grace of God. We can show them how they can be rescued. We can take them to the Good Shepherd. We just need to join Jesus in the fields. God wants to use us to rescue people who are lost. Now, I know it's hard, and I know it's easy to feel guilty and condemned. We all feel like failures when it comes to this, don't we? But let's not allow the flesh to condemn us and to convince us that we will never change. Let's let's not ignore what God's trying to do this morning. Conviction is a gift from God, and so is repentance. And God is eager to forgive us and to change us. He doesn't just leave us where we are. He changes us, and He conforms us to the image of Christ. When we see Jesus in the Gospels, we're seeing what God wants us to be like. And we are not our own. We're not on our own. We we have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to help us become more like Christ. And in this passage, good news, Jesus tells us what to do. Look at verse 38. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest, to send out laborers into his harvest. So I just have two simple points. Number one, pray. Pray. Please note who we're praying to. The Lord of the harvest. That means that God is in charge of the harvest. He's overseeing the whole thing. We are not in charge, thank God. It's not up to us to do this on our own. God is the key in evangelism. And that's good news. We don't have to put undue pressure on ourselves or think that it's all up to us. It's not. It's up to God to bring these lost sheep into the fold. Now, we do have a role to play, an important role. right? We're called to befriend the lost and and to share the message of the gospel. We have to get to work in the field. But God does the heavy lifting. He's behind everything we want to see happen. 
We need God to direct us to people, to give us favor with them, to open their hearts, to convict them of sin, to give them a clear understanding of the gospel and the work of Christ on the cross. We need God to regenerate them, to give them the gift of faith and repentance, and to save them. We can't do any of that. Which is why prayer is so critical. It's why Jesus says we should pray to the Lord of the harvest, to the Father. And it's why Jesus says we should pray earnestly. We should pray fervently. And this is where spending time with non-Christians and seeing how lost they are will really help us. It'll produce compassion, which in turn naturally leads to prayer. Mark McCloskey says, if you want to develop a burden for the lost, does anybody here want to develop a burden for the lost? Do you want that? Do you want to develop a burden for the lost? Go out and talk to the lost and see how lost they really are. That's how you develop a burden for the lost. Spending time with those who don't know the Lord will fuel our prayers. It's like praying for an orphan that you're sponsoring in Africa. We prayed as a family periodically for the kids that we sponsored through Covenant Mercies. But when I traveled to Zambia, and I saw the little girl that we sponsored, a little girl named Prudence, and I saw where she lived, and I saw what her life was like, I felt deep compassion. And it compelled me to pray in ways I never have. And I actually cried all over this poor little girl, this big white Mzungu, that's what they call us, it's just crying, she had no idea what's happening to her. But it, it just moved me. I felt compassion and I prayed. And it's the same with the lost. Spend time with them and you will pray for them. And you'll pray earnestly. But what do you pray? Well, first, that the Lord of the harvest will send workers into the harvest field. That the one who is sovereign in salvation will send out laborers into the harvest. This passage is emphasizing the need for laborers. Jesus is in the middle of the harvest and he wants us to join him. The problem is not with the harassed sheep that are lost and running away from God or the availability of ripe wheat, which is the readiness of people to hear and receive the gospel. It's that we don't have enough workers. We don't have enough laborers to get into the fields. We don't have enough Christians who will do the hard work of reaching the lost. We don't have enough Christians willing to sacrifice to reach men and women with the gospel. So we need to pray. Do you pray for the lost? Do you pray for opportunities to share the Gospel? Do you pray for the mission? Do you pray for boldness? Do you pray for evangelists and missionaries? Do you pray for the spread of the Gospel? Number two, the first point is pray. Number two, go. Now, it's not enough to just see the need. It's not enough to just feel compassion or even to pray, we must go. Prayer leads to going. It's not an option for us as followers of Christ to keep the message of the gospel to ourselves. We have to reach out to the lost, not just someone else, not just the bold people, not just the extroverted people, not just the mature Christians or the gifted evangelists or those on the mission field or those on a church plant, but us. 
Now, where do I get this? I get this from chapter 10. Notice that Jesus didn't just set up a series of prayer meetings to pray for the lost. He immediately sends out the disciples to do what he's been doing. Jesus didn't intend to be the only one in the harvest field. He always intended for his followers to do the harvesting. And he hinted at this in chapter 4 when he said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. There is a significant transition taking place right here in chapter 10. Jesus has been the one doing all the ministry. He's the one preaching the gospel and teaching and healing the sick. He's out front and the disciples are bringing up the rear. So the disciples are more like crowd control at this point, okay? Or they're like the, the bench players on an NBA team. Did you ever see these guys? Their job is just to bring a lot of hype. So if somebody dunks it, their job is to stand up and be like, whoa, and they have to hold each other back. And like, they're just kind of a hype team, right? Well, here in chapter 10, they're actually checking into the game. So the disciples who were before were just like crowd control and doing this, and maybe Jesus raises somebody from the dead. They're like, yeah, oh, whoa, and they're all the, that's okay. Jesus is like, okay, now you guys are going to go out. Now I'm going to send you out to preach the gospel and to heal the sick. There, there is a huge transfer. There is a passing of the baton. Jesus was doing all the ministry. Now he wants them to do the ministry. And the disciples are an answer to prayer, specifically his prayer to send laborers into his harvest. Oh, great, here we have 12 guys. We can send them. Now, you might object. You might say, well, wait, these are the 12 disciples. I mean, these guys are apostles. Some of these guys wrote scripture. They're the all-stars, and I'm not. Well, they're actually not all-stars. They're nothing special. One commentator said that the picture of them is sheer ordinariness and that they are the unspectacular raw material that God likes to work with. Aren't you glad that God likes to work with unspectacular raw material? And if you're still not convinced, in Luke chapter 10, after sending out the 12, Jesus then sends out the 72. So if the disciples were the bench warmers, these guys are the D-League. They're just regular old followers of Christ. We don't even know their names. And that's because they're us. It's because all followers of Christ are called to help others become followers of Christ. But it ain't going to be that easy. Years ago in our bridge course, we have a follow-up course called the Bridge Study. And there was this guy named Bill uh, who was in the bridge study. He, he wasn't a believer, and he had gone through it. He's kind of a blue-collar type guy. And at the end of the bridge study, we, I said, Bill, are, are you going to be going to church now? And he just looked at me, and he goes, well, it ain't going to be that easy. And I was like, okay, Bill, wh why isn't it going to be that easy? He goes, well, spring and all. Meaning like spring's coming, he's got to cut the lawn and mulch and that sort of thing. That became a real phrase around my house. So when I'd be like, hey boys, are you guys going to mow the lawn? They'd say, well, it ain't going to be that easy. <laughs> and it's very true when it comes to evangelism. 
Well, it ain't going to be that easy. As we get into chapter 10, Jesus tells us about a gathering storm. Jesus is going to take the brunt of this storm. The opposition will be intense and unrelenting. Jesus is going to experience trials and resistance until the end, until they finally get him and have their way with him. And that is all part of his calling and mission. And it's true for us as well. Like Jesus, we will be opposed in this mission to reach the lost. And it's getting worse. The message of the gospel that we're sinners that deserve hell and can only be saved through the death of Christ is not a popular message. In fact, everything we believe is basically offensive. We have lost whatever popularity we at one time had. We are increasingly seen as hateful, unethical, oppressive, and the opposition is growing, which should not surprise us. Jesus prepared us for this. Look at Matthew chapter 10. I want to just bounce through a couple verses here. In Matthew 10, he calls the 12 disciples, and then in verse 7, he's sending them out two by two. So this is the passing of the baton. In verse 7, he says, proclaim as you go, and verse 8, heal the sick. That's the mission. That's what Jesus was doing, proclaiming the gospel, healing the sick. You guys are going to proclaim the gospel and heal the sick. So imagine the disciples. Imagine what they felt. Wait, he's sending us out? I thought he was going to do all this. I thought we were just kind of crowd control. Wait, uh, okay, oh, two by two. Well, hey, can you partner with me? Like, what, what are we supposed to do? And Jesus is giving them instructions. And then he says in verse 14, and if anyone will not receive you, or listen to your words. Wait a second. You mean some people are not going to welcome us? There's going to be some people that don't listen to us? And then Jesus says in verse 16, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now this has got to be the worst motivational speech that has ever happened. Think about this. Jesus is like, okay, guys, everybody gather in here. We're going to go on the count of three. Sheep among wolves. Okay, ready? One, two, three. Sheep among wolves. All right, guys, let's go. Sheep among wolves. Sheep among wolves. Sheep. Wait, what? Sheep among wolves. I mean, I, I did some research on this a couple years ago. And I was like, I forget. Like, sheep had 16 teeth. A wolf has like 38. Sheep can run this fast. A wolf is like three times as fast. Jesus is basically saying, you're dead meat. You're dead. I'm sending you out to your death. Can you imagine what it would be like to be the disciples and to hear this? And then he says in verse 17, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues and you'll be dragged before governors and kings. What? We're going to get flogged for this? Verse 21, Brother will deliver brother over to death. What? Your family members are going to hand you over to death. And the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. Verse 22, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Oh, would anybody like to sign up for evangelism? Anybody want to be part of my evangelism team? You're going to be hated by all. This is, this is what the mission is. And it gets worse. Verse 23, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. So now they're fugitives. Verse 26 then, 
So have no fear of them. Have no fear? What are you talking about? We're going to be hated and flogged and killed by our own failures. How could you say have no fear? Well, verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So you see what Jesus is doing. He's giving them eternal perspective. He's saying what matters is not as much what happens in this world, it's what happens in that world. And we can sacrifice in this world for that world. He's lifting their eyes to eternity. And then he says, verse 32, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who's in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So now this is, it's not optional. It's not optional. We, we can't deny him and we have to acknowledge him before men. And then he says in 34, do not think I've come to bring peace to this earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword. He has come to bring peace between us and God, right? Romans 5. That vertical peace that we have. He's talking about horizontally with others. It's not going to be peace. It's going to be a war. It's going to be a fight. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be a battle. Verse 35, for I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Any person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In other words, you have to put the mission above your family and you have to take up your cross, and you have to be willing to die. Now, as I have been studying Matthew 10, I'm just like, yikes, what in the world? When I became a Christian, I did not know I was signing up for this. It feels like you're signing up for the Cub Scouts, and you end up on Paris Island for the Marine Corps boot camp. When you became a Christian, you may not have realized it, but you signed up for a mission to bring the light of the gospel into dark places. And as we seek to carry out that mission, we will meet with opposition. Like Jesus, we will be opposed. This doesn't mean we're doing something wrong. In fact, it means we're doing something right. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And church, we have to be prepared for this. If we're going to be faithful stewards of the gospel message, if we're going to be a church that reaches into the darkness, we have to be able to absorb the blows of the opposition. Like boxers, we, we have to be able to take some hits. The Rocky movies are some of my favorite movies, and they're all about taking hits. Spoiler alert, every single movie is Rocky basically getting beat to a pulp, and then at the end, he stands up and comes back and wins. And there's a great quote, I can't remember which one it is, it's like Rocky 32 or whatever it is, where he says to his son, he goes, it ain't about how hard you can hit, it's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. That's my best Rocky impression. I have 16% Italian in me, so you probably, probably sounded authentic. Um, that's a great quote. Because, brothers and sisters, we have to be able to take a hit 
and keep moving forward with the gospel. Charles Spurgeon says, if ever anybody should despise us for Christ's sake, let us not count it hard, but let us be willing to bear scorn and contempt for Him. Let us say to ourselves, then did they spit in His face. What then if they also spit in mine? If they do, I will hail reproach and welcome shame, since it comes upon me for His dear sake. See that wretch is about to spit in Christ's face? Put your cheek forward that you may catch that spittle upon your face, that it fall not upon him again. For as he was put to such terrible shame, everyone who has been redeemed with his precious blood ought to count it an honor to be a partaker of the shame, if by any means we may screen him from being further despised and rejected of men. There's a powerful scene at the end of Schindler's List when Schindler has to flee the country after saving over 1,100 Jews. He had risked his life time and time again. He gave the equivalent of more than $100 million of his own money to rescue as many Jewish men, women, and children as he could. And at the end, he's there with all these Jewish people and he says to his friend Ithac Stern, he said, I could have got more out. I could have got more. I don't know. I just could have got more. And Ithac says, Oscar, there are 1,100 people alive because of you. Look at them. And Schindler says, well, if I've made more money, I threw away so much money, you, know, you have no idea. And Ithac says, there will be generations because of what you did. I didn't do enough. You did so much. Schindler says, this car, Goth would have bought this car. Why did I keep the car? Ten people right there. Ten people, ten more. And then removing the Nazi pin from his lapel, he says, this pin, two people, this is gold. Two more people. He would have given me two for at least one. One more person. A person stern for this. And then he breaks down sobbing. And his friend holds him and he just says, I could have gotten one more person and I didn't. And I didn't. Oscar Schindler saw the Jewish people in their desperate plight. He sacrificed so much to save so many. He was like Christ in this. But he was right. He didn't give everything. But Jesus did. Jesus gave everything. He sacrificed His life when He saw us in our lost condition as we were barreling toward hell, storing up wrath for the day of judgment, careening toward an eternity of suffering, He had compassion. It was gut-wrenching for Him. And so He left His throne above. He became one of us. He became the Son of Man. He clothed Himself in flesh so that His flesh could be pierced, so that His body could take our curse and absorb our punishment. He gave everything even His life, to save us from hell. And He calls us to take up our cross and follow Him. 
and to bring the light of the gospel into a dark world. Yes, it is dangerous and scary, but Jesus gives us the power of the Holy Spirit who gives us boldness to overcome our fears so that we can reach the lost with the greatest news in the world, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.